It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Tom Troy, President and Chief Executive Officer of CSAA Insurance Group, a AAA insurer. With more than 100 years of experience serving AAA members, CSAA offers automobile, homeowners, and other personal lines of insurance to AAA members through AAA clubs. Tom is part of a leadership team that cultivates innovation in a customer-driven organization focused on serving AAA members during life's uncertainties. He joined CSAA in 2019 and brings 30-plus years of insurance experience to his role as president and CEO. Tom's career has spanned many of the top insurance companies in the industry, including Kemper, Safeco, Liberty Mutual, and Allstate, before joining CSAA. He is a board member of the American Property Casualty Insurance Association and the Bay Area Council and earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Washington and his MBA from Seattle University. Tom Troy, welcome into the corner office. Brant, thanks for having me on the show today. Ah, it's great, great to have you here, Tom. And, you know, we were just talking a little bit about, gosh, all of the uh, various uh, pandemics that seem to impacting us here in the Bay Area. And, of course, the water, air air quality has been bad with all the fires. We're, we're about five months into the pandemic now. How are you holding up given all these things that are going on, both personally and professionally? Well, thanks for asking, Brant. Yeah, it's been a quite an interesting year. Mm. Uh, not only the pandemic, but we're having another record wildfire season yeah. here in the state Crazy. of California with yeah. uh, uh, at least one of the largest fires I think the state of California has ever seen. And in combination, you know, some pretty significant damage out there. Yeah. And yeah. regrettably, we're only uh, in, really in the first month of the yeah. normal wildfire That's season. That's right. It so, really hasn't even started yet, has it? Yeah. Crazy, right. So crazy. 2020 continues to to amaze um, in a number <laughs> one, of ways. One, one uh, thing after another. And and how's the business holding up? Is this impacting your, you know, your members and what's going on with policyholders throughout the state? You know, AAA membership, I think, has been holding up really well. Very right. strong performance there. Not surprising, I think, when we find that when there are times of duress, uh, people seek safety, they right. seek comfort in knowing that they're going to be taken care of. And that applies to how they think about their vehicle. No one sure. likes to be stranded along the side of the road. So when it's top of mind, uh, topics like safety, uh, people think about a AAA membership and AAA yeah. serve 
members for over a century, as you mentioned in your int- introduction, yeah, uh, so that they can be assured that they'd be taken care of if something happens to them on the road. On the insurance side, what I'd say is that profit has held up fairly strong. Mainly that's due to the fact that uh, we have seen people driving less. Now, mm, right. we compensated for that by giving premium refunds to oh, appreciate the fact that people were driving less. Right, right. Um, from a growth standpoint, during the shelter in place, business activity in general was subdued. Right. You know, one of our number one shopping triggers is when a person buys a vehicle. That's when they tend to think about their auto insurance. Right. And as you know, during the pandemic, at least in the first several months, most auto dealerships were closed and automobile sales were not what they were right yeah. uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, as the economy has started to open up, we've seen our business uh, sales start to pick up as well. Good. That's encouraging, and, and yeah. we're hopeful for more of that as the year wears on. Yeah, wonderful. Well, it's funny that you reminded me. September is actually my renewal month for my AAA membership, so I've got to make sure I go and do that. I think I've been a member for, gosh, over 20 years. One of the first things I think dad mom did for me when I, I began driving. So um, at any rate, well, thank you for that overview. But we want to talk a little bit about you and hear more about CSAA over the course of this podcast. But let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about your early years, Tom, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah. So when I was born, my father was in the military. I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm. We moved around a little bit, um, Texas, California. And when he shipped out to Vietnam, we were in the Seattle area. There's a army base there, Fort Lewis at the time. It's now joint base Lewis McCord. Um, When he got out of the service, we made a life in a small town in Washington state, uh, right on the Columbia River. Mm-hmm. center of the state of Washington, a little town called Wenatchee. And uh, I've got five siblings, uh, and it was a great place to grow up. Yeah. Uh, a lot of wide open spaces there. Where are you in the pecking order? Top, I'm bottom, in the two. middle? Number I'm two. I'm the second. Okay. I've got an yeah. older sister, and right. I have one younger sister, and then I've got three younger brothers. Well, it sounds like mom was pretty busy at home. Did, did dad have a career in the military and continue after his service and go into other fields? Or what was his trajectory? Well, he was wounded in Vietnam. Mm. So when he recovered, um, he left the military. Right. What he did in the military was manage uh, field hospitals. Mm. And, so, and he had a master's in hospital administration. So when he got out of the military, he turned to that as his uh, profession. Right, and right. ultimately, he was the the longtime CEO of a hospital there in central Washington. And um, then he retired as a CEO of a hospital in uh, Grays County, which is on the coast of, of Washington in the Pacific Ocean. Got it, got it. So pretty much stayed in one place as you were growing up, you and your siblings. Pretty much, yeah. I, yeah. I left the little town of Wenatchee to go to the big city to go to college <laughs> in Seattle at the right, University right. of Washington. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, Huskies, big, big fan, big rivalry. I think I mentioned uh, when we spoke briefly, I'm an Oregon Duck. So we have <laughs> a good rivalry going on there. Were you involved in any sports at all when uh, you were growing up uh, and then going into college? Yeah, I played sports, you know, when I was um, all the way down into grade school, started with baseball and played uh, basketball, baseball and football. I played football through high school. I didn't carry that on to college. Uh, But after I got out of college, I played uh, rugby for about five years just to 
have a club sport to, yeah. to stay active and stay fit. Cool. Were you a good school, a good student growing up in school, elementary and high school? You know, I, I think I was a good student. I wasn't the valedictorian of my <laughs> high school, but um, I like to think I, I my one of my best friends was a valedictorian. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's sort of a, a model I think I followed really throughout my life is to uh, try to make sure that I have friends who are smarter than me. Right? And right, I, it's right. not always hard to find, but yeah. <laughs> um, the point being, I, I tend to um, tend to be uh, attracted, you know, to folks who are smart and invest in their intelligence. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciate that about people. Other than sports, anything else that uh, you were involved with growing up? Music, theater, debate, anything, any of those kind of areas? You know, in our household, it was mandatory that you play a musical instrument. Wow, so um, all of us did. I was the percussionist, probably much uh-huh. to my mother's chagrin. <laughs> <Her> chagrin. <laughs> um, and uh, my older sister was a, a violinist. Uh, so he kind of went down the, the pecking order. My youngest brother... Uh, also decided he was going to be a percussionist. He's the most accomplished. He's actually a Grammy award-winning oh, wow. percussionist, and he yeah. lives in Los Angeles is, yeah. and is active in the music business down there. Awesome. What about entrepreneurial things uh, when you were younger? Did you have the ubiquitous paper route or do the lawn mowing routine? There were things that you uh, engaged with as a kid. Oh, yeah. There was always a scramble to, <laughs> to uh, try to make a little money. So Growing up in an agricultural town, you know, you could early right. on, well before you were 16, find work, you know, picking cherries or, or apples. Right. Uh, right. So I certainly did some of that. Had a little lawn mowing uh, on the side and sprinkler changing and a couple of orchards uh, near my house. So right. Right. there's always a way to scratch out a, a few bucks uh, around that town. Well, with four siblings, uh, was it kind of a, a, a pre-conceived you know, idea that you'd go on to college and you'd have to perhaps contribute towards that? Or what were mom and dad's attitude about that? Well, both my parents went, went to college. Yeah. Uh, my mom was a biologist and you know, my dad um, was a business major and went on to get his master's degree in hospital administration. So right. it, it was always, it was never really a discussion. It was always the <laughs> assumption that all of us were going to go to college. That would be the next step. We'd leave the small town and go off and get a degree. And that, that'd be your launch point. So my parents were very supportive of that. I think each of us, although my parents wanted to support our college education financially, each of us kind of went to school thinking that we were going to do what we could to, to pay for as much of our education as we could. Right. And uh, I was fortunate. I, I got a job right out of high school in the summer as a carpenter's apprentice. And as uh, the college career went on each summer, I worked in the construction industry and was able to, to pay for a large share of my my college education by myself. Was that union or, or uh, non-union, I guess. I got a union card. I I went right when I, right before I graduated from high school, a friend of mine and I went and we got our, our union cards. And um, I took my card proudly to a couple job (laughs) sites, but the first, place where I got a job was a non-union, non-union right, um, right. organization. And I ended up working for them for two summers. So yeah. awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, what did you study in college and, and what made you decide to go down that route? Well, I was, you know, really focused on business, um, yeah. both as an undergraduate and I got my mass, my MBA as well. So it's pretty much straight up business classes. I took some extra communication classes as an undergraduate, um, 
thinking honestly that if I decided to pursue law school, I might like something like collective bargaining and arbitration that seemed interesting to me at the time. But right. as it turned right. out, um, I got interested in insurance and yeah. one thing led to another and here, here we are. And you went right into, I think, underwriting, if I'm not mistaken. I, I remember in our briefing call prior to, I said, you know, I've, I've worked with every single insurance agency that you worked with, Kemper, Safeco, Liberty, as well as uh, Allstate. So you've had quite a career. What, what attracted you to the insurance industry? You know, at the time when I graduated from college as an undergraduate, I thought I was going to go into the investment business. I had mm. been working part-time, um, first through an internship and then part-time for a stock brokerage. And I thought I was going to go into their training program. Uh, right, uh, see, the spring of that year was when Drexel actually went out oh, of business and yeah. in the Seattle office. They decided to hire a number of the Drexel brokers. They brought books of business and they said, hey, Tom, we're, we're not going to do our training program this year. You can mm. stick around and cold call for a year and go into the train, training program next year if you want. That just didn't really interest me. So right. I went out on the, on the job search and I applied for a job as a commercial underwriting trainee. And I was really attracted by the prospect of being in a training program. And this was with the old Kemper. Right. Yeah. Um, I got the job. I was assigned to the Seattle office. And uh, again, one thing led to another. And 30 years later, I'm still in the insurance <laughs> business. You know, it is one of those industries where, you know, people, um, it, it's quite unique, I guess. I, I you know, I, I think we, we spoke earlier that we've done some recruiting in that field. And, and it's very rare that people can come out of another industry and go into insurance, particularly mid-career. Right. You know, there's a few people that kind of pivot from financial services, banking sometimes. But, you know, what is it about kind of the insurance industry that makes it so unique and that that experience is so important for success? Well, I might first attack it from this angle. In my experience, I really haven't found more than a handful of people who would honestly tell you that they always wanted to work in the insurance business, <laughs> right. right? I mean, I just, it, it's, it's remarkable really that um, when you talk to folks and explore, how did you get started in the insurance industry? It was in almost every case, the fact that it was an accident. <laughs> by accident it wasn't right. their by, design, by design in college yeah. Yeah. or right. leaving high school that they were going to go to college to get prepared for a career in the insurance business. Or maybe Which they had a parent, a, or maybe they had a parent that worked in the industry. It could before. be that. I've, I've uh, now that there are before. some risk management yeah. programs that I yeah, think yeah. really help people um, and encourage people to be on that path as an undergraduate right, and to, right. to matriculate into the business. But um, it, it's the kind of business I think you get hooked on, right? If you give mm. it a try and yeah. you, you start to, to learn about it, once you kind of get through that early phase of understanding um, the essence of it, why it's so important, uh, the value of it in terms of an economic stabilizer in society, uh, once you kind of get over those hurdles, um, I, I think a lot of people really find that there are some deeply interesting career paths that yeah. you can take in the insurance business and yeah. uh, people get hooked. Did you get leadership responsibilities early on, first at Kemper and then at Safeco? Yeah, I mean, you know, my first leadership roles were at Safeco. So when mm -hmm. I was at Kemper um, for about two and a half years, and I'd just gotten married, 
I was asked if I wanted to move from Seattle back to Kemper's headquarters in Long Grove, Illinois, to be oh. part of a, a specific team that was going to support uh, Marsha McLennan at the time. Oh, right. Sure. Yeah. And uh, that seemed really exciting. And my wife was game for the move, too. She was working at Boeing uh, at the time. Uh, and we said, but, you know, we hadn't really been looking to leave. So why don't we just first look around locally? Because right. uh, the Boeing job is a good job, too. And so I talked to a few brokers that I knew and said, look, I'm not going to push this very hard, but if you hear of any interesting jobs on the underwriting side or the company side, you know, let me know about it because I might want to take a look. And one suggested that I talk to Safeco about an mm. opening and it just seemed like a perfect fit. So I took that job and they ended up in sort of a um, entry-level managerial position. Yeah, and that was my first managerial experience. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what do you remember from that? And what were some of those early lessons in managing people? You know, the, I'd say the biggest thing that I was somewhat concerned about at the time being an inexperienced manager was that everyone I was managing was older and more experienced than mm. I was. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think I may have come into that thinking more traditionally that, you know, the, the manager is typically the more experienced person has deeper knowledge base for that reason in many cases tends to be older than the people that they're managing but right. you know times right. had already been changing even then and times have only continued to change to bring us to now so i think i wanted to and and i i did i i think successfully i'm sure i got better at it over time but really wanted to make sure that i was impressing upon my team that I didn't question that they had a deeper knowledge base about, you know, the specific work that we, right. that we were doing than I did, yeah. but that yeah. my role was to, to do more of the administrative, you know, leadership oriented tasks and not get in the way of their technical expertise. Mm -hmm. Were you kind of one of the first times or first managers they had that were younger than you, or had that been part of the industry for a while? Uh, you know, for that specific group of people, that might've been the case. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that it was necessarily uncommon in the industry, right. but, sure. uh, from my experience, it was likely that that was the first time that they yeah. had to endure that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you spent a good half of your career at Safeco and I, I'm assuming maybe I'm not correctly, but I know that Liberty bought Safeco and I thought it was around the mid 2000s. Did you tran you know, transition to Liberty with, with the purchase? Was that how you left or did you leave prior to that? Yeah. So I'd been at Safeco for 15 years and then in 2008, Liberty purchased right. Safeco. That's what I recall. Um, yeah. As we and Liberty did a fantastic job really kind of onboarding uh, companies as they were rolling up smaller regional companies yeah. and, and they really became very proficient at it. One of the things I really appreciated that they focused on was making sure that they put teams together that represented um, a cross-section of the companies that they were buying. So mm. the, their approach was not to come in wipe everyone out at the company that they acquired and just have the the liberty people in charge right they really were uh, understood that a big piece of this was culture and morale mm. yeah and so they looked at it and said look we want the best of the of the companies that we're buying and so we want to see leaders 
from both Safeco and Liberty mm. and Ohio Casualty, and Colorado Casualty, and so on and so forth on these leadership teams. Mm. Um, when we came together and did the due diligence, that was apparent. And after we announced the deal, there's typically a couple of months, you know, before the deal closes. And that's when the integration teams were working together. Right. And in that process, I got to know the Liberty leadership and they got to know me. Yeah. And and the first position I took after that was the chief operating officer of the of the regional companies group. So did they let Safeco kind of operate on its own then, Tom? Or was this kind of a parallel management structure? So what they did was they they decided to use the Safeco brand for personal lines. And that's right. still the case today. Hmm. That's an independent agency brand out in the market focusing on personal lines products, you know, sold through independent agents. Commercial, which is where I was at the time of the acquisition, right. was folded into this regional companies group. So all the Safeco commercial business was folded into Colorado Casualty, one of the uh, eight regional companies. And then over time, we moved beyond those regional company brands and we came to one Liberty Mutual commercial brand. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah. one hears horror stories about some of those integrations gone awry um, over the years. But, you know, I I really have admired how that was rolled out. Um, Did, you know, and you stayed obviously for close to eight years, I think, after that. Would you say that, uh, you know, they had kind of learned lessons prior to that? Because I think Safeco was one of the later acquisitions, were they not? Hadn't they purchased a lot of smaller companies prior to that? Yeah, at the time, that was the largest one that right. they had done. I think they've done bigger uh, since then, um, I believe. Uh, but at the time, it was the largest they had done. And and then there was a little bit of a hiatus. Right. Um, so there was time for integration. And look, those things aren't easy, Brant. You know, That's I don't right. want to yeah. um, sugarcoat it. There's difficulties, you know, across systems, which we had to overcome. There were difficulties across uh, different product sets, which if you want to go to a single system, you have to overcome that at some point. Uh, So, you know, there were challenges. But I think, again, by developing a team that was a combination of the best players from all of the acquisitions that were made, I think Liberty did a nice job of integrating the culture and ultimately integrating the products and the systems. Yeah. Awesome. So you stayed about uh, seven, eight years and then moved to Allstate. Tell us about that transition. What brought that about and what was the opportunities you saw? It? Well, as you imagine, Brant, over time, you know, people develop uh, mentors, you know, that right. they they look to. Sometimes those people are at the same company that you work for. Sometimes they're out there in the industry or even outside of the industry. Uh, I got to know a person who was within the insurance industry over time. He was a CEO and eventually a chairman of uh, a number of organizations. And, you know, he called me about a CEO opportunity and Mm. thought I should uh, get in the mix for that particular selection process. I went through the interviews and as I understand it, you know, made it to the final two candidates, but I didn't get the job. Right. Um, He then really almost immediately came back to me and said, hey, I mean, you, you acquitted yourself very well. There's actually another opportunity I've learned about over at Allstate, and this might be, you know, an interesting opportunity for you to do some different things there. So uh, one thing led to another. I took his advice and 
interviewed with the great people at Allstate, yeah. of which there are just so many tremendously talented people at Allstate. And I was intrigued and, and excited to um, to go there and spent, um, spent three years there. Great yeah, company. And that, and that was a relocation too. Did you move to to Illinois for that job? Yeah, moved to Chicago, yeah. ended up right. living in, in the city. Uh, the headquarters for Allstate is out in the suburbs, out in Northbrook, right. but I right. decided to live in the city. I lived uh, about three quarters of a mile from Wrigley Field. Um, right. there in Lakeview and, uh, what a great city Chicago. Yeah. Is. Yeah. And did family transition with you there or was it more of a, um, you know, uh, empty nest situation by that time? Yeah, we were empty nesters. Yeah. So, um, that's an easy the, move. The first year I was at Allstate. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a, my last, um, my youngest child was finishing high school. Right. So I did some telecommuting, you know, for a while. Sure. Sure. And then after that, um, she ended up going to Wisconsin, uh, which is only a couple hours away from Chicago. So, and we moved the household to Chicago and and really, really enjoyed that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And now about a year and a half at uh, CSAA, tell us about that transition and, and uh, stepping into the corner office. How'd that come about? Well, it was really kind of that same mentor, you know, reached out and said, you know, um, you don't always get to choose the timing, but, um, <laughs> you know, you keep it, keep an open mind. Uh, so I decided to, to, again, take the conversation. And, um, again, I was very intrigued. And as I got to know the, the board members a little bit more, I began to see that this was, you know, really interesting opportunity. And, um, they also liked some of the the different experiences that I had had in my career. Yeah. And so it was a good fit. Yeah. Awesome. And again, relocating uh, now this time to the West Coast. Was that a tough choice, particularly after you'd kind of spent a nice three years in Chicago? Well, I, you know, it's different. I We really enjoyed the urban living in Chicago. The headquarters out here is in Walnut Creek. So it's right. in East Bay and it's yeah. really not feasible to kind of live in the city and commute right. out here. You right. can do it, but it's a big time commitment. And yeah. Yeah. Not the best commute. Um, so we decided to to move to the burbs. Uh, so it's just a different lifestyle, right? I mean, we're, we're only 30 minutes away from Napa, so that's fun, but right. uh, it certainly doesn't have the same kind of energy or atmosphere that, um, that you experienced when you were living in downtown Chicago. Yeah. Right, right, cool. Well, great company, uh, as we mentioned in the intro, over 100 years, uh, terrific AM best ratings and, you know, a very well-established culture. Um, how is it kind of taking over the reins of, of, you know, such a large organization, but also such a successful one with such a rich history? Well, I think that's just it. You know, I in my assessment, I wanted to be really careful to make sure that I didn't do anything to disrupt what I thought was a pretty nice uh, culture and yeah. not nice, meaning nicey, nice, but really pleasant, hardworking, uh, socially aware culture. Yeah. 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 And, and the AAA thought, connection, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I just thought there were so many things that the organization had done so well. I really worked hard to, to try to make sure that people were clear that I wasn't there to disrupt Mm. Um, that, that mm -hmm. I, in fact, wanted to continue to, to ca help carry the torch. Right. 
Right. Awesome. And, um, you know, how's it been so far? You know, you're, as I said, coming up on two years, about a year and a half now there. Um, you know, do you see your role as being kind of doing the same, you know, keeping it on the steady course that's been in the past? Or are there changes and upgrades, you know, particularly given as we talked in the beginning of the uh, podcast with, you know, all the disruptions that are going on with fires and health concerns, et cetera? Well, you know, this organization has been here to serve AAA members. And um, so on the one hand, that isn't something that we're looking to change. We really right. want to focus right. on being the best that we can be for AAA members. Yeah, um, We are probably the most successful in that regard in the state of California. And as a result, we also face a, a unique exposure in that this happens to be a state where wildfire risk is extremely high. Right. And we're one of the top writers of homeowners insurance in Northern California. And so we have quite a bit of uh, concentration of exposure um, to, to that particular peril here in the state of California. So yeah. one of the things that we really want to work on is to diversify geographically Mm. Uh, the business that we have. We do business mm. in 23 states, but right. California is our largest and it also has this unique wildfire peril. So we'd like to see uh, further growth and expansion into the other 22 states where we do business to help diversify the portfolio of, yeah. of property risks that we have. So, so that's one area of emphasis here right. in the short run. And uh, is the current footprint mostly Western U.S., Tom, or are you uh, coast to coast at the moment with your 23-state representation? We're coast to coast. We actually mm. do business in New York and New Jersey. We have yeah. a large office in New Jersey, actually. Um, so it's uh, it's the 23 states are spread out yeah. from coast to coast. Yeah. So I'm filling in the gaps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Forward. Like yeah. To keep it interesting. <laughs> there you go. Um, so tell us a little bit about how your leadership style is, has evolved, you know, from the early days at at Safeco and, and of course, then, you know, your ongoing responsibilities in, 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 into the corner office now of a, you know, fairly well-established and obviously very successful company over time. Are, are you doing things differently? And if so, what would that be? Well, I, I think it's the case that, at least in in my career journey. You know, I've seen a lot of managers in the insurance business and even at the brokerages, you sort of get your first look at being a manager because you've proven yourself from a technical um, standpoint. Right. And so it's natural early on in your career that you've got more of a a technical focus in the way that you manage your um, managing at the transactional level. Still, you're helping to train new underwriters. Um, you're really still pretty deeply steeped in the technical aspects of the business and starting on your your leadership journey. As the journey has progressed, um, you have to find a way to separate from that day-to-day technical and really work on leading the strategy, the vision. Um, Also leading on the inspirational side, especially as your teams get larger, you've got to bring the whole organization along. Sure. And so there's a, a necessity, I think, to to focus more on those things as a leader. That isn't always easy because what is easy is to fall back to the technical depth that you have right, and to right. want to get involved yeah. in rolling yeah. up your sleeves and problem solving 
with the team, but go back to underwriting. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, I've tried yeah. to, to consciously, you know, resist that when that tendency gets too strong. Right. Uh, right. To make sure that I'm playing the role that I'm supposed to play right now, which is to, to lead, to develop, to inspire, to motivate. Yeah, I've heard some CEOs say that one of the areas, as you've mentioned earlier, to have a smarter person than you are is in the discipline you've grown up in. Right. <laughs> so go. therefore, you can totally rely on their judgment being much better than perhaps your own, given the, their experience. How, how do you decide, Tom, if it's time to micromanage someone or, or when to stay out of the sandbox? Well, I think sometimes it's obvious when a person is struggling, perhaps mm. when they haven't faced an issue before. It could be a people management issue. It could be a technical issue. It could be a business relationship issue with another uh, company that you do business with. Right. And so when you recognize that, that might be a time where it's necessary and important. And I don't know that I'd use the word micromanage in this case, but to step in a little more them. deeply to support yeah. you know, the yeah. person. Right. Um, and make sure that they kind of stay on a path that can deliver success. And, and importantly, so that when there is a successful outcome, that they can look back and say, okay, I, I've learned something in yeah. this particular yeah. situation. And hopefully, you know, Tom supported me in this learning. Yeah. Next time I face that, I'm going to be better. Yeah, and know but how to do I it do differently. I do think yeah. it's an interesting question that you ask, because really, I think the right answer is you, you probably want to work hard to avoid getting in and micromanaging, but, uh, to the degree that you need to step in and maybe manage to a, a more, uh, technical level, it's likely the case that it's only needed when you have a team member who perhaps hasn't faced the situation before right. or right. is struggling with that specific situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so important. You know, you're obviously got growth ahead. You mentioned about, you know, filling in the gaps, the, the balance of the states that you're not operating in. What, what do you look for, Tom, when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Well, I, I place a high value on a level of optimism and creativity mm. and work ethic. You know, yeah. it's, and it's not about I only want people who, who, you know, work harder than some benchmark level. But I think that in my career, what I've seen is people who step up when the organization or the team is in need right. and can really uh, put their shoulder to the situation and, and muscle it through. That's an important skill set to have versus to have this one size fits all level of energy. Right. Uh, and level of commitment. And so I just have always appreciated. And I, that as a result, I tend to look for um, people who give me the strong signal that they're willing to lean in and uh, commit to the organization and commit to uh, the idea of winning um, versus uh, to commit to a certain style of work and you know, winning is tertiary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So circling back to one of the areas that we spoke about earlier and the, the importance of, you know, insurance industry experience. You know, when you look at your C-suite, your direct hires, how important is 
you know, for someone filling a new role coming out of the industry? Is that absolutely fundamentally needed? Or do you take risks in that area and bringing people in that perhaps, you know, have the qualities and the expertise, um, but maybe not have that insurance industry experience? I think there's room for risk, you know, but I think mm-hmm. it's specific, Brant. Right. You know, when you look at innovation, if you're going to hire an innovation leader, it might be the case that you're better off going outside of the insurance right. industry because yeah. the truth is that the insurance industry has been kind of late to the game when it comes to significant technical innovation. True. Yeah. And um, so you may want to, you know, look to the outside to spark some different creative energy. Right. On the other end of the spectrum, when you think about the importance of claims handling and claims leadership in our industry, it might be a bit of a stretch to bring someone from a completely different profession into a senior claims role. I I think you may may not produce the kind of result that you want. And so there you might tend to favor someone who really is steeped in the the technical expertise required to be successful as a claims leader. Very discipline specific, isn't it? Right. Yeah, that decision. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, great. Uh, you know, you you get involved in hiring, I'm sure, sometimes level two below the organization. You know, one of your direct reports or perhaps one of theirs comes to you and says, oh, I've just got this great person. You know, I think he or she is going to be terrific in the company. You know, maybe it's a director or a senior manager role. Yeah, but, you know, y- y- you spend five to 10 minutes with them, right? What, what, what do you look for in those situations? What do you zero in on? What do you ask them? Well, Again, I mentioned it earlier, so thanks for giving me another shot to to bring this part in, and that is a sense of optimism. Mm. You know, it, mm. it's it's not always a bed of roses at work. Um, sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes right. it's difficult. Right. Um, sometimes the wins are harder to come by, and the <laughs> team gets a lot of energy from wins. So when the right. wins are harder to come by, a lot of energy is... Uh, starting to pile up and potentially yeah. becomes negative energy. So I really look for for people who can bring a mm. sense of optimism, you know, to a discussion. And you typically can sense that in a person uh, early on. Yeah, yeah, great. I think we all want to hire smart people, motivated people, creative people who bring fresh ideas. Uh, but to partner all of those or some of those skills with, a strong sense of optimism mm. and uh, to find someone who also values being part of a team and appreciates the uh, camaraderie and teamwork that occurs in the workplace. You know, that's when you tend to walk out of that meeting feeling like, hey, this person would be a great addition and I would enjoy working with them. Yeah. Yeah, I want them in the same rowboat with me, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, Tom, we're just about out of time, but I've got a couple of last questions. You know, obviously a lot of speculation about, you know, what life looks like in, in a post-COVID world. If we even enter a post-COVID world, who knows? I mean, things are changing so much. But what changes do you see ahead for the industry, particularly the insurance industry? And, you know, what's, what's going to be changing? What's going to remain the same? I think we're going to look at, back on this year And we're going to realize that there were some things that we had already been working on that were accelerated because Mm. of the pandemic and that we never turned back. Mm. I'll give you an example, Brant. We and many carriers have been starting to mature in our thinking around how to handle claims in the virtual context. 
letting a customer yeah. through our app take a picture of the scene of an auto accident. And if it's not too severe, it's a fender bender. Everyone's okay. Nice. Take some pictures of the car, upload them. And within two hours have money deposited in their bank account. Wow. Yeah, that can be done today. And, yeah. and the top carriers are doing that today. Mm. In the in the last few months, it's been the case that we couldn't do physical inspections. So we had to rely on that technology. Yeah. Right, right. And if you came into the pandemic without that technology, mm. it was probably a struggle. If you came yeah. into the pandemic pandemic already experimenting with that technology, and then you had to kind of rely on it as um, your full-time way of handling uh, smaller automobile claims. You're probably coming out of the pandemic realizing that, hey, that not only works great for us, but it's a much better experience for the customer because right. the customer wants those kinds of things resolved yeah. as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Big so plus. It's just one example. Yeah. Brand, but I think there's a number of things like that, that again, we're going to look back on and say, hey, we came in thinking that things like this might work. We had to actually rely on these kinds of new innovative right. ways of working with our customers. And it works so well, there's no reason to go back to the <laughs> right, old way. Right. Yeah. Interesting. What about remote working? Did, did you have a large percentage of your workforce remote already? And has that increased? And will it stay that way? Well, we probably had less than 5% of our mm. workforce working remotely pre-pandemic. Wow. Yeah. You know, in early March, we sent everyone home and right. uh, we're still not back in the office and we don't plan to come back any earlier than February 1 at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make a decision in January if February 1 is still a good date to phase people back in. Right. When we do phase people back in, we know we're not going to go back to... 95% of the people in the office and the same 5% working from home. We know that there are going to be more people working from home for the long run. We're not quite ready to commit to, to what that percentage is, right? but it's going to be significant. It's going to be double digit. Yeah. yeah. And um, Big that's change. going to be our new yeah. world going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Terrific. Well, Tom, you've been very generous with your time, but we always ask our CEO guests the last question. And that's what, you know, career and life advice would you give to someone who has their eyes on the corner office for, you know, uh, their own career. And maybe they're, you know, 15 years in at this stage, maybe they've been with the same company for that period of time, but, you know, they've, they, they've liked to think about uh, maybe running their own show someday. What, what would you, what would you say to them? There's two things. One is to commit. You know, if you decide this is a profession that you really want to be a part of, whatever it is, you right. know, we're talking about insurance today, but your audience could be from any number of different industries. You know, commit to that, that that's really what you love and, and enjoy it. You know, enjoying it allows you to be fully yeah. committed. Yeah. You want to be fully committed because if you're going to continue to make progress in your career, at some point, you know, people are going to, sniff it out if you're not really right. committed to the business. Right. So you, you got to find that in yourself to commit to being the best that you can be in the yeah. business and enjoy the journey too. Yeah. Enjoy right. the journey. Yeah. Let that yeah. take you where yeah. it can take you. Right. Um, and then I think the last thing is something that I've touched on before. It's not enough for us to look for a sense of optimism in the people that you want to hire. You want to lead with a sense of optimism. Mm. And I'd say, whatever it is that you've decided to do and commit to, uh, it's a decision that you've made. So why not be optimistic about it? 
Yeah. And I think that that optimism uh, really affects other people in a positive way. It's contagious, way. isn't it? They yeah. sense it. Yeah. It's contagious. Yeah. yeah. And most people appreciate someone who has an optimistic yeah. view. So why awesome. not? Great. Well, Tom Troy, Chief Executive Officer of CSA Insurance Group, CSA Insurance Group, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Brant, thanks for having me. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 